First weekend of the OHL season is in the books, and already I've got bones to pick. I'm looking at you, Jacob Millette, and Andrew LeBlanc. Also, a tip of the hat to a former OHLer. I'll get to that in just a moment, but Popper, in case you missed this one yes. over the first weekend of OHL action, because it's possible you missed it, Ryan O'Rourke got suspended for two games. I did see that. Uh huh. Where did you um, see it, though? I saw it on Twitter. Somebody screenshotted the OHL's website where you have to go through three different things to find out a suspension. Uh, we had the commissioner, David Branch, on this podcast just two, well, a week ago, maybe two weeks ago now. No, a week ago. Um, and we had, that was the second time we had him on, actually. The first time, we suggested that maybe the league start tweeting these suspensions so the media and fans know about it. We had a couple suggestions for Mr. Branch, but that was the one I made. And safe to say, I don't think they took my suggestion. It's just, it's a little bit frustrating because I saw it the same way you saw it. In fact, I think I saw your retweet of the original tweet with the screenshot of the OHL media notes page. But I, it's, it's frustrating because we've just begun another season. And I don't think what you're asking for in this case is an awful lot to ask for. And the fact that it's not happening just it keeps me asking the question why is it because yeah. suspensions don't look good they don't look good on the player and maybe the league thinks that the suspensions don't look good on the league because heaven forbid you've got players that do suspendable things within your league and you don't want that image being out there i don't know but in the absence of the transparency that we've been asking for for years in all of this i i find it a really frustrating way to start off just send out a media release so that the media, I, I don't care that somebody that's a fan of the game saw it first and, and shared it first. That's not what I'm getting at here. I'm just saying, let the people that cover the game know. Let the fans know. They're probably on your email distribution list as well. They just, when they get there to to the GFL arena in, in Sault Ste. Marie or where they played on the road in, in North Bay, the Greyhounds did, let the fans there know that Ryan O'Rourke, a a highly touted defenseman in this league is not going to be in the lineup because he got a two game suspension for head checking. It's that simple. Well, and I I'm stuck with the same question. I'm right with you. When I, when we ask why, why isn't there transparency from the league in this? And maybe that's not the right way to put it because they are being transparent and putting it under the media notes on their website that Fair enough. he has been suspended. And I originally thought that the league was maybe just, as you put it, trying not to put it at the forefront that, hey, we're suspending a player for something that he did. But when was the last time a player was suspended where that sit, that team's media member didn't find out or find out at the game or that broadcast person and tweet it out anyway, put it out into the universe, say it on the broadcast. It happens all the time. When we last two years ago, when the league last played their season, I can't remember who it was, but a player was suspended. We found out when we got to Oshawa. And we said it on the broadcast. We sent out the tweet. But why? I don't even need a press release because I don't think you need to send out a whole press release for every suspension that's going to happen. I just don't understand why the league isn't more forefront and just sending a tweet. They send a tweet for everything, everything else around the league. You can't send one tweet that just says, hey, Ryan O'Rourke suspended two games for head check. Done. That's all you need to do. Then everyone who follows your league is aware of what's going on. I don't know why they try to hide this, or maybe they're not trying to. Maybe it's just the way you and I look at it. But to me, just putting it on your website 
under the media notes that, to be honest, not a lot of people check every day and really shouldn't have to check every day. Putting out a tweet, which is, I guess you could say, the way most people get their information nowadays. They're breaking news, if you will. I don't understand why you can't just do that to educate your fans, the media, players of what's going on. I really, I don't understand. It takes literally 20 seconds to send the tweet. There was a time that the Ontario Hockey League was going full on Brendan Shanahan when he was in charge of discipline with the NHL and you got a little video explanation. And I, I really think that's valuable stuff, not for media and fans necessarily, but for the players themselves that even would see this. So you've got the link in the tweet that takes you to the video that shows what Ryan O'Rourke did. That was very bad and suspendable, suspendable suspension worthy. Thank you uh, for two games. Like, I mean, it just, I don't know. I think it's a huge missed opportunity. I'm with you. And, Listen, I would love the video because I think those are great and it's a great educational thing to show everyone who follows the league why this was a two-game suspension or why it was suspendable in the first place. That's a lot of work, so I get it. There's a lot of other things going on. I don't think sending a tweet is really that big of a deal, but here we are, three games max into a season per team roughly, and we've already got a couple suspensions that haven't been sent out properly in my eyes. Anyway, well, in our eyes, anyway. Um, I don't think it's a black eye in the league if you suspend a player. I don't know why they would want to hide that. You're taking the action. The player did, or sorry, you're taking the reaction. The player did the action. It's a simple reaction. You suspended him. You should be, I don't want to say proud of it, but you, you're disciplining him for something he did wrong. There's nothing wrong in that. So I don't understand why it's just being hidden on a website and not being sent out to everyone. It felt good to get the league back on the ice for obvious reasons. It was 576 days for the two of us between games from Wednesday, March the 11th, 2020, when we were part of a broadcast in Guelph that turned out to be the last night of OHL games before COVID shut everything down back in 2020, up until October the 8th, when we were first at a game at the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium. And and like you said, coming into the season, Popper, if you're one that's been known to lay a wager or two along the way, lay it on the over. And that was the, that was the order of the weekend for sure. It was with the amount, like with the amount of rookie players in this league, we saw it firsthand in two games in Kitchener and in Guelph. The hockey's going to be sloppy for the first couple months. And with the amount of goaltenders that aren't experienced goaltenders in this league, there's going to be a lot of goals early in the season. And there's these stats are going to go through the roof. You know, um, it's just the way the league is right now. And that's the way I see it anyway. It's going to be, and we talked, I mentioned it on the broadcast on Saturday night in Guelph. I was talking to a few scouts and asked them, oh, where were you last night? They told me where, I won't say where for obvious reasons. And I said, oh, good game. And they both looked at each other and went, nope. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's not just us that are seeing that. I think it's just across the league right now that because of the long layoff for the majority of players, because there's so many rookies in the league this year, and because of the lack of older proven goaltenders, it's going to be a high-scoring sloppy game. I, I promise I'm going to get to Millette and LeBlanc with good reason, damn it, but since you brought up Saturday in Guelph and getting the chance to talk to some scouts, let's just, let's just draw the curtain back here a little bit and talk about the weekend that was in the Ontario hockey league, at least from the two rinks that we were in, but a bit of a, a bumpy transition back into hockey life, if you will, for the organizations, because the league had on Thursday. So the, the first day of the season, because there were three games on Thursday night, the seventh, 
So 24 hours or so before we were first at a game in Kitchener, but the league had sent out sort of its media policies, an umbrella policy. And there was a lot in it, make no mistake. But one of the things that was lacking on Friday night in Kitchener with our season debut was a lineup for people to look at. And I, I say that, I say people because scouts came to me in our broadcast booth before the game said, Hey, Farwell, did you get a lineup? I'm like, I, I got nothing. We couldn't even get a cup of coffee in Kitchener on Friday night. And well, actually you saved the day. You were everybody's hero. Cause you did a coffee run off site. But then Saturday we got to see the scouts because everybody was just kind of leaning up against the wall and standing around crowding into this corridor outside the media room. Cause we couldn't go into the room, but there was food served by tongs and coffee served by a, a latex gloved hand. And anyway, at least we got to gather around and, and speak to some of the people we usually speak to before a game, but it, it's a bit of a bumpy tra- transition, I would say for the first weekend. It was and that Friday night in Kitchener. I had many people coming up to me because I was up at the booth when you were down looking for a cup of coffee, people coming up. Do you have a lineup sheet? Do you know where you get this lineup sheet? And you know what? Game one, I understand there's going to be some kinks, both in Kitchener and in Guelph and everywhere. In Guelph, yes, we were all eating in the hallway. I don't think that was what we were supposed to do, to be honest with you. I think yeah, they I, expect we, you to get your food and go to your seat on yeah. press row or if you're a scout just in the in the stand somewhere. Um, I've told a couple people this when they ask, you know, how was the first weekend? I don't care when I have to wear a mask. I don't care where I have to eat. I don't care what I have to download to get the stat pack. I don't care what they ask of me. We're back. I'll do it all. I don't care. I'm just glad to be back. And I think that was kind of the MO around the the league this week and everyone I talked to. Is it ideal? No. Do we care? No. <laughs> like whatever. Whatever they ask of us, whatever they tell us to do, whatever rules are in place. Sure. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to question. I'm just going to do what I'm told in order to call OHL again. I'm a little higher maintenance than you. Obviously I got a cup of coffee and a cookie on Saturday night in Guelph and I was set. No, not to mention a lineup sheet. I I'm, I'm a creature of habit. I, I guess maybe I do have to get into the, the 2020s here and, and get away from printed paper, but damn it. If I don't like having, those names and and those numbers right in front of me for quick reference. So I suppose I could get used to toggling a screen, but oh boy, that coffee on Friday night that uh, you found was a lifesaver for a lot of people. And I was really happy to have one from the media room in Guelph on Saturday. Well, and it's not just us. Like I'll, I'll be honest. I don't think he'd care if I told the story on Friday night, game one of the season, Guelph comes into town. I'm down at the Guelph, room in a socially distanced area away from the room and George Burnett came walking in of course I said hi coach welcome back and we had a quick chat and then he said are you waiting for someone he offered to get me the player and I told him who I was looking to interview and he asked me are we allowed to do this are we doing this this year and I said it was initially no that it was all going to be via zoom but then I believe it was just Thursday they released that yes you can do pre and post game interviews six feet away from the player socially distance and not like obviously around other players. So I explained this to George and he went and grabbed the player. So there's so many moving pieces that even a guy like George Burnett isn't sure as to what's going on and what isn't sure as to what, you know, media members are allowed and certain what the access to his players are 
Um, but we got through it and he understood, got an interview on the road, no issue. But I think just with all these moving pieces and now, of course, you know, Friday night at the odd, we find out that tomorrow, Saturday, they're allowing full capacity around. So the Gulf Storm couldn't even sell the additional tickets because they didn't have the people, uh, the staff in place. So they only launched an extra thousand tickets. Um, but now that rinks are a thousand or sorry, a hundred percent capacity. Um, and now that the teams and organizations have the first weekend under their belt, I think things will move a little more smoothly now. And to your point, we're back calling OHL games. Fans are obviously engaged based on our social media activity and the numbers of them that were in both rinks. We had just under 3,900 on Friday in Kitchener, just under 2,900 24 hours later in Guelph. It's, I'm, I'm so happy for this league. I am so happy for the kids. And, and I'm with you. Just give me access to the building. Tell me where to go, how to dress while I'm on my way there. And then give me a microphone and let me be a part of this again, because uh, not for one second ever will I take any of it for granted. No matter what the road trip is, no matter what time I have to leave, what time we get home, uh, just let me call these games again. It's been, it's been such a treat. Two games in, 66 to go. Bring them on. Bring them on. I'm, I'm with you. And even that first weekend when, you know, for the last 19 months, we've had our weekends wide open to now all of a sudden Saturday be like, well, see you at three 30, there goes your Saturday because you're worried <laughs> about the game you're prepping. And then Saturday night we got home at what? Like it was a Guelph game, you know, 20 minutes down the road. And we still got home at, I think like 11 o'clock almost. Yeah. It's just, it's, but I, you know, and then I got home and I had to do reports for the radio station the next day. I had to write a, a web article and uh, my, my girlfriend's like, you're still working. I'm like, this is the job. This is it. Sorry. I can't, you know, sit and talk and watch a movie. I got to listen to this interview. I didn't, you know, transcribe quotes and all that. And I don't care. Like, yeah, it's a lot. And it takes away your weekends. Who get, who, pardon my language. Who cares? You know what I mean? Um, we're, we're back. And it, as you put it, like, I don't think I'll ever take it for granted again, just the, how lucky we are to be able to go into these rinks and watch the quality of hockey. We are, um, you, you mentioned all the number of things we have to do. I want to uh, transfer off that. And you mentioned numbers. So why are you mad at two kids right now? <laughs> okay. I I'm going to get to it, but real quick to, to what you were okay. just talking about, find all of Chris's online game recaps at kitchenertoday.com. Find us on social. Like so many did over that first weekend at underscore Chris Pope at Farwell underscore OHL. Email us if you want to have a guest on this podcast or you want to just tell us what you think of it, farwellandpope at gmail.com. And hey, leave a review, subscribe, follow along, all of those good things. Uh, except Jacob Millette and Andrew LeBlanc. You're not allowed. Just get away from this podcast until you change your damn number. I know this is a little thing, but I'm going to start by picking the net. Jacob Millette is a forward for the Guelph Storm. He's wearing number six. Right. Andrew LeBlanc yep. is a forward for the Kitchener Rangers. He's wearing number seven. This doesn't work for me, guys. So if you don't mind, stop it. Or can we because you know how I love the rules, Popper. I need to have the rules. And yes, I am completely making this about me and, and the difficulty in air quotes of being a play by play person. When you see number six on the wing, you're like, why is the defenseman jumping up in the rush? Oh, he's not a defenseman. He's a forward. Same with number seven. We got to figure this out like football figured this out. Stop it. Shout out to Warren Fogle, who wore number three with the Kingston Frontenacs. No more, please. We have to have, we have to have rules. And then honorable mention, Justin Nolay, number 95. For, don't even ask me what Ty Hollett's doing with 74. We're going to have to get into all of these guys' numbers and why they have them. But Justin Nolay scores the winner on Saturday night. I'm thinking, why is a forward down by, oh, wait, no, that's a defenseman wearing number 95. I, wear whatever number you want, but no, actually don't. Can we have, can we have some rules around this? 
Single digits are for defensemen. End of story. I'm with you, and I think I called that out on the Friday night. You did, so that's why I thought one. I'd bring it up. <laughs> what is LeBlanc doing wearing seven as a forward? Um, but we his brother's the defenseman, wears eleven. Wearing eleven. Like, one yeah. of them got it 7-11. right. Seven eleven. Seven eleven. We we saw Joseph Greffel wear four, and I don't remember you complaining too much, or was it just that Joseph was easy to identify? Maybe that you know what it probably was. That's a very yeah. good point. But wait. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Well, he was yeah. he was also he the was a defenseman. He was a forward. Yeah, he was, but, yeah. And he came in as a he had been a defenseman his whole life mm-hmm. until his last year, right? When his draft year, and then he anyway. I think I, I'm thinking like two to ten, two to eleven, two. Let's go two to eleven for defense. Twelve to twenty-two for I don't know. Just make something easier. It's ridiculous. It's hard on us old guys. Number six and number seven being forwards, 95s on defense. What the H E double hockey sticks? Justin Bailey, number 95. Um, I it doesn't bother me that much. And I think, you know, like even the NFL, they always had the rule that certain players could only wear or certain positions could only wear certain numbers. And they've relaxed that now, opening up all numbers. Tom Brady even came out and said that he hated it. So I'm not going to get into what numbers players can or can't wear. I think the biggest thing is. If a player has just left your team, the, like the year before, that number shouldn't be allowed to be war for a year. <laughs> so Adam Zidlicki, he's got you just spinning still. Yeah. Of course, that's a Kitchener forward, and he's wearing 13. Riley Damiani wore 13 for three years, I think. So it's just – and the last time we played, he was obviously on the team. So as soon as you see 13, that's where your brain goes, and you got to just have to re-educate yourself. We're old. We've it's been away for a long time. Re-educating ourselves on these numbers is the hardest part. The amount of times I had to look down and look at who, what number is that? Who's that? It's not good. And but the good, the good news is four of the six games are against the Storm for the Kitchener Rangers on our broadcast. So I'll know all the Storm players by next week. Saturday was so easy after Friday because it's like, oh, the same teams. Do it. It's like a playoff series. Do it yeah. all over again. Uh, but just to be clear about this, I, I'm just having a little bit of fun. I think both Jacob Millette and Andrew LeBlanc are fine young men and fine hockey players, and their numbers are just weird for the positions they play. But they can wear whatever number they want. I just thought we'd have some fun because we're back playing OHL hockey and broadcasting it. You mentioned our uh, the way people can get in contact with us, farwellandpope at gmail.com or on the Twitters. We had uh, Lowell Williamson again and Cam Stewart down in Windsor area. Uh, both fans of the podcast emailed us guest ideas. So if you have some guest ideas, feel free to throw them out to us. Or if you just want to text or email us and tell us that uh, you don't like us, that's also fair. Uh, it was uh, Lowell who yes. got Scotty McCrory, right? Scott, that's what yeah. led to Scott McCrory's uh, podcast, which was a great fun. Great so, idea. Good. Yeah. I look forward to uh, to following up on more. I, we've, we've received a few others uh, way back in the, uh, off times. Um, clearly we have a lot of listeners in Kitchener and fans in Kitchener, which is mm-hmm. great. Cause that's our home broadcast team. Uh, but yeah, like it's great to hear from guys down Windsor way. I know we've got some fans in Erie that like the pod and keep, keep them coming from everywhere. Yes, we will track down the former Rangers too, but you know, we want to, we want to make this about the Ontario hockey league and there are 19 other teams to choose from. Yeah, and we want to get a, a variety. We've had general managers, commissioners, coaches, players. We want to get a variety, not just all former players. Um, sometimes their stories are kept private. Whereas, as you will find out this week, a former player and head coach uh, let some stories loose, let's say. I was just going to get into that because we've got, yeah, it's, it's a pretty neat uh, mix this week with a guy that played in the league, uh, went on to win a, a, I shouldn't, 
get go any more than this because this is this is your uh your part of the podcast. But yeah, we had a guy that played and then came back and coached uh, in this league as well. And and I certainly will just say, and I, I wouldn't say this during the interview because I don't want him to know this, but I've got a lot of time for this guy. I got a ton of respect for this guy. He was never anything but good to me from his first time, his first day in this league. And uh, I certainly hope we see him back in the league. And I'll leave it to Popper to finish off the introduction to this guest this week. Real quick before we get into that introduction. There is one team, as we sit here on Tuesday, October 12th, one team that is 3-0 in the Ontario Hockey League. Any guesses on who that team would be, Mike Farwell? Oh, I I'll, should I'll know give you this, this I'll, I'll give you this hint. Don't think too hard. Oh, no. The, really? The London Knights? The London Knights. 3-0. <laughs> you don't say. I was 19 thinking months Bay. off. Yeah. 19 months off, and some things just don't change. Um, our guest this week, one time a member of the Detroit Junior Whalers after he played in his hometown for the Hamilton Kilty Bees and then went on to the Plymouth Whalers and then snuck up north back into Ontario, back into Canada to play St. FX. I was going to give him, I, I was going to ask him about it and say he went to Acadia because I knew that would rub him the wrong way because he's so incredibly proud of his time at St. FX and why not won a championship with his brother there member of the St. FX hall of fame, then got into coaching under a couple of guys, Pete DeBoer and Steve spot. I don't know if you've heard of them, then took over the reins in Kitchener, made a pit stop in Humboldt back to Hamilton. The guy's been around. He has been under the tutelage of some wise minds and he, a wise mind himself. Some great stories from his time as a player, some better t- stories from his time as a coach. We get them all. Obviously, we have a lot of ground to cover with our guest this week. And uh, before we even get into it, I want to throw back to a previous podcast guest. And I'm going to, in the art of the tease, I'm going to do this later in the podcast as well. Another, a different previous guest. But in this case, as we have our conversation with Troy Smith, he told us that he would not come on this podcast until none other than Pete Krupski made his appearance might have been the only podcast guest we've had that got emotional while talking about his days in the game. So Chad LaRose could be doing anything else on this August night comes in with the Stanley cup. We put it down in front of the penalty box. He says, Krupper, I'm really starving. Get me something to eat. Got him something to eat. You know, he signed every autograph. He took every picture for four and a half hours. I'll never forget that. As long as I live, it's terrific. But Smitty, why was Krupper's appearance before yours so important to you? Tell us a little bit about that relationship. Well, I've known Krupper for geez, 26 years, I guess now, right? And I think Krupper can be misunderstood a lot of times when you meet him, depending on the mood. He can be a little bit crusty here and there. I think we all know that. And he wouldn't disagree. But nobody, uh, not many guys are as passionate about his job and what he does and, and what he did for that Whalers organization. I just thought it was appropriate that he got recognized. And I thought that uh, was one of your best episodes. See, I thought it was you wanted to see what stories he'd tell of you first. <laughs> so then you could have the last say in the argument. Well, there's some stories between Krupper and I that'll just, you know, be left unsaid, but, uh, <laughs> You know, I'm sure he told some, well, I know he told some good stories. And, you know, there's not really that much to talk about me with Krupper other than every time we went in there, he made sure it was the trivia question and uh, it was all good. 
obviously uh, a lot to talk about with you and the Ontario Hockey League, including that time as a whaler. But before we even get to that, Troy, really, I think your passion for this game was ignited when you first took in an OHL game as a fan. What do you remember of that? It's, it's true. I think I can't remember who brought it up, which guest brought it up. But my first OHL game was actually a global game of the week. I want to say it would have been probably 85 or 86. It's on YouTube. It's the famous bench brawl between the Sioux and the Steelhawks where Brad Dalgrano stood right in there with Bob Probert and a big delay. I'm sure a lot of headaches for our good friend, David Branch, but you know, that was my first game. And then from there we went on to billet uh, a couple of players, one being Sean McCosh, whose brother Shane played for the Rangers back in the day. Uh, Sean went on to have a really good pro career, uh, a couple of games in the NHL scored one goal. Actually, he's in Ken Reed's book, uh, One Night Only. And then we also had Todd Gleason, who, funny enough, I live in Burlington now, and he probably lives about five minutes away from me. He met his wife uh, at our house. She was working for my mom. And, you know, being around those guys, I was really, really fortunate to be exposed to uh, what a great league the OHL was. Or is. Was, it, was it always hockey for you, Troy? Uh, yeah, like growing up, it's hard not to be in my house. All four boys played at one time or another, but, you know, I I really had a passion for the game from day one. And, uh, you know, there was never a question if I was going to go NCAA or OHL, it was OHL all the way. And and what a great ride it was. Well, it's interesting you bring up NCAA versus OHL because OHL it is for you and it was all the way, except you get drafted to a team in the United States. What's that like for a kid from the hammer? Uh, you know, it, it was amazing. Cause honestly, that's one of the few teams that didn't talk to me was at the time they were still the junior wings. And it was funny because a, a really good friend of mine to this day, Tyrone Garner, who played for the Oshawa generals, uh, he'd been interviewed by him numerous times. And we both wanted to go there to play at the Joe. Um, unfortunately that didn't happen. Got drafted by Detroit, uh, met a, a great young coach and a future mentor of mine and Pete DeBoer, who had been on the job for about two weeks. And, uh, about two weeks after that, we became the Whalers. So, uh, I really didn't care where I was going to get drafted to. I just wanted to play, but, um, you know, I, I was definitely surprised to be taken by the junior wings and, uh, obviously it, it really worked out and everything happens for a reason. How was the city of Plymouth when you went there as a boy from Hamilton? Uh, well, we actually started my first year. We played at Oak Park. And, uh, geez, you know, bless Don. Don would have to be the one to tell you the stories about that place because it was absolutely freezing. It was a kitty rink. And, um, you know, it was quite the experience because I want to say we had 12 home games at Oak Park and 21 at the Palace. So, uh, we didn't end up in Plymouth right away. We were back and forth. I lived in Windsor my first year uh, with Tom and Yale Joyce, who are great people. And then uh, we moved to Plymouth my second year. And I, I think Plymouth's really a hidden gem. Like, it's a beautiful little city, uh, great community. I had fantastic billets there as well. And uh, it, it was a great experience, just really different than, you know, a Canadian city where everybody lives and breathes uh, by what the OHL team's doing. It's a little bit different where you kind of have to explain, you know, hey, we're actually really good players. Uh, you know, I think we had five first round NHL picks uh, on our team my last year. And just explaining the difference between that and, you know, Michigan State, University of Michigan, places like that was a bit of a challenge, but I had a great time and I wouldn't change it for the world. So what's the first game like in the Ontario Hockey League for you, particularly where you were playing it? Uh, well, 
exhibition or regular season? <laughs> I can tell you, I, I got caught watching a pass and broke my jaw in the first game, but um, you know, that was, uh, it's exciting. You know what? It's, it's a boyhood dream. Um, you know, it was in Windsor. Um, it, I don't really have vivid memories because I probably only got two or three shifts. I think I was more just in awe and, and, uh, and just happy to be there really. What happened on the broken jaw play? Uh, well, nice shot from the point, a little floater, just, you know, getting it to the net and I was watching it and I still to this day have no idea who it was, but literally cross check right in the face, went to the bench with my two teeth, uh, doc, uh, the doc, why, why can't I think of his name? I can see him. Um, he's an author now, but the doc had to literally reimplant the teeth, uh, right inside the room. And I started a journey and a relationship with a dentist so at one point. <laughs> The dentist actually gave me a hundred dollars for gas money because I'd been there so many times, but you know, the teeth look good now, but there was a lot of times where uh, it was pretty messy. What kind of pain were you in when he's shoving teeth back into an empty hole in your mouth? The, that one hurts a lot. Yeah. They, they, they don't have time for the freezing, but um, you know, that, that's what you're supposed to do. And uh, it was directly to the, to the dentist after that to get wired up. But um yeah, definitely learn. Don't admire your pass. But thankfully, too, though, the, the game has changed. Nowadays, that'd be a you know, 30, 40 game suspension for somebody. OK, so you guys both know me well enough to know that I am being sincere when I say even hearing that story, I get squeamish. I mm-hmm. couldn't not for one second. That kind of pain just it, honestly, it, it makes me squeamish just hearing about it. But it ties into something else I wanted to talk to you about, Troy, because I know you you wear this as a bit of of a badge of honor, and and so you should. And I think you referenced those trivia questions that you were always a part of when you came back into Plymouth as a coach. I I do believe it's either the Ironman streak or the most games played, but you you took great pride in not missing games while you were in the O. Uh, Yeah, like I got hurt a fair amount, but um, yeah, I I played a lot. I, I did take pride in playing hurt and doing what I can for the team, obviously, uh, I think Spotter mentioned it in his interview that I was a, a defenseman and a forward for the team, but uh, I was just a team guy, you know what? And I think, you know, ultimately down the road, that's why I was given opportunities to continue in it and coach, you know, obviously Pete coached a lot better players than me, but uh, both him and Spotter saw something in me. And I think it's, you know, it was hard work and and commitment and passion for the game. So uh, I took pride in that. I still take pride in it to this day, even in my automotive uh industry i think you get out of things what you put into it and uh, i like to think that i was a, a good team guy let me follow this up real quick chris i'm sorry but it, it ties in because you mentioned the guys who were your mentors as coaches and what they thought of you from that dedication as a player you also had to show that same dedication and play hurt if you will as a coach i believe it was the 08 memorial cup run was that the one <laughs> if i'm getting my date my date straight yeah i, I I don't find this story as funny as you do, Mike. But, <laughs> we all find it funny. So it, this was more stupid pride, to be honest with you. And um, so we were in Belleville, and I think we all know the story now that Steve Mason was hurt. And Mace gets off the bus on his crutches and needs his wallet. He forgets his wallet at the back of the bus. So me being, you know, the energetic one, I'll get it for you. Stay at the front of the bus. So I'm hopping over the bus, and I get about halfway back. And I happened to toe pick against the Gatorade uh, container, to which point I fell literally knee first right onto the uh, armrest and never told anybody. But about a year later, uh, Dr. Duke, 
who we all know from the Rangers, informed me that I had likely broken my kneecap, but decided not to tell anybody because when I was writhing in pain in the back, all I could hear was the laughter up front from uh, Pete and Spotter. But, um, you know, I, you know, it is what it is. I probably should have seeked some medical attention, but, um, you know, still a fun story nonetheless. Their names have come up a couple times, but that relationship between you and Pete and Spotter, um, how does it go to what it was from being a player under a coach? Um, you, you know what? There was obviously, you know, when I was done playing, I went off to uh, St. FX University, as you well know, Chris. I thought it was Acadia. I was going to bring that up earlier. Oh, well, hey, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> That's a sign of your intelligence. But anyway. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm kidding. It's all good. It's all good. Um, to an old St. FX is right now, but um, – no, when I was done, I would go back and I just wanted to be around it. So I'd help with training camp and then I'd go back and I'd help uh, during playoffs if they were still in it. And that's really when the relationship started to change when there wasn't that, um, you know, the, the player coach thing. And they started to really mentor me and including in my decision to go to St. FX. And, you know, it was more of a gradual thing. You know, I always think of it as you know, Pete was kind of more of the, the dad role, you know, tell it to me straight and, you know, kind of knock me over the head if I needed uh, to hear things. And then spotters, you know, more like the uncle role where, you know, he still tells it to me straight. Don't kid yourself, but uh, a little bit more of the, the rah-rah relationship. But, you know, we, I would say that we all have that relationship now where there's some pretty good banter going back and forth. And, um, you know, I, I'm unbelievably fortunate to still call those guys uh, dear friends to this day. Isn't the, the short version of the story really that you showed up, started helping out and just wouldn't leave until they gave you a job? Isn't that kind of how it all worked? Yeah, kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of. But re- realistically, what happened was, is I was playing in the uh, in the United Hockey League for the now infamous Danbury Trashers. And uh, I was actually going to go back to school and become a teacher. And uh, I, I can still see it to this day sitting on my on my flip phone. And Pete calls me and says, listen, we got a job opening. If you want it, it's yours. So uh, I believe we had a day off the next day or maybe it was two days. So I literally in the middle of playoffs, got in my car, drove to Kitchener, sat down, met with Pete and Spotter, gave me the parameters of the job, gave me the parameters of the contract and agreed to do it at that point. So really, I, I just think, you know, I was really lucky to be in the right place at the right time and, and make the most of it. I think you, you mentioned Danbury. Um, yeah. <laughs> where do we even start on that after that documentary if people haven't seen it? Uh, I guess I'll just ask straight up, how many suitcases full of money did you get? <laughs> <laughs> and where well, are they hidden now? <laughs> I, I don't know if you remember me as a player, Chris, but I really wasn't that good. But I'll, I'll tell the story. You know, it's, it's kind of public knowledge now. But um, So I was actually, my first year I played in Quad City. Uh, for the Quad City Mallards, which was the United Hockey League, for Paul Gillis, who's former coach of the Windsor Spitfires, played for the Quebec Nordiques. The next year, I knew it was going to be my last year of uh, of hockey, and then I was going to get on with life. I played in London, England, for a team called the London Racers, which had to fold about two months in because the rank, again, I'm in another kitty rank, figure that one out, right? Probably paralleled my game, uh, wasn't safe. So they had to shut the team down. There was glass breaking, all this other stuff. But we still had our flats for like five months after that. So Gilly calls me when he finds out that the team's folding. And, um, 
needless to say, he had offered me $175 a week bump from what I made the year before. But I said to him, ah, you know what, Gilly, I'm going to take this flat in London, which is worth probably 3,000 pounds a month. I'm just going to live here. I'm going to be a crappy waiter, but I'm going to have a great time in Europe, and then I'm going to move on with life. My older brother, CA, was living in London, England at the time as well. So hang up. I don't think anything of it. Next day, Gilly calls me again. He goes, listen, I've uh, talked to my owner. He said I'm, I'm being cheap, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you X amount to sign and basically double the offer of the day before, which equated to basically two weeks worth of pay for the signing bonus and three times what I made the week or the year before. So off I was to Danbury as quick as I could get there to start collecting the check. But it was all above board for me. There was no cash. It was all, it was actually quite brilliant how they did it. It was, you know, you got paid X amount for the United Hockey League and then you got paid X amount through a marketing company, uh, which included, you know, going to appearances at places like 7-Eleven and sit there for half an hour to an hour. Nobody would walk in or sometimes <laughs> they would. You know what? You sign the autographs and then you'd have to sign off that you were there. They'd take a picture of us that we were there. And uh, it, it was great. You know what? Danbury was a, an unbelievable place to play. Uh, people that haven't watched the doc should definitely watch it. But uh, I've got nothing but great things to say about my time in Danbury and the way Jimmy, AJ, uh, the whole family, Candace's sister, um, you know, and Mrs. Galante treated us. It was, it was top shelf and one heck of a way to, to end the career. What did you think of the doc? Uh, I thought it was really good. It's, it, at times hard to follow for me just because there was a little bit of creative license there where, you know, the timeline didn't work. I knew that, but again, they're trying to make something that's entertaining, but all of it was legit. Like that was the thing. Everybody keeps asking, was it all true? And it's like, yeah, but there was actually probably a whole nother doc full of stuff that we could have done on incidents that happened. And, um, you know, every day was an adventure, but it was it was a great team to be a part of because really they talk a lot about the goons in there, right? Not the goons, but the tough guys, right? I shouldn't say that. And, and they were. Like, I drove Brad Wingfield to the rink every day. He lived in my community, who's a, a main character in this documentary. And we had probably half of our guys were like that, where if you looked at them the wrong way, you were in one. And then we had half the guys, though, that were really, really good players, and, you know, Mike Rupp talks about it in the doc, like AJ did a really good job with his dad and Paul Gillis of putting together a great hockey team. And, you know, we ran into some injuries, things like that. And Kalamazoo had a good team as well. Let's not uh, discount them. But, uh, you know, we were within a couple of games of winning the championship, which what more do you want when uh, obviously all the stuff behind the scenes is going on? So the synopsis of the doc for anybody who hasn't seen it, is basically the movie that you came to know as Slapshot with Paul Newman in real life, so to speak. So you talk about those tough guys that were a key part. That was part of the, the creation of this team. Was there ever a point, Smitty, as, as a player, <laughs> that you sat there and looked around and thought, what the hell am I doing here? A couple, a couple for <laughs> sure. There, there's one that when it involves Section 102, and those Section 102 people, they were passionate as can be, but... You know, when you see the body bag come out, the horn that would just be on for 30 seconds straight, like there were things being said that you just shook your head at, but nowadays would never be tolerated, but it was of the time. But 
the one story that really sticks with me, and again, I can see it as vivid as, as today, is um, when I talk about Sean McCosh. So I went and saw Sean McCosh play, uh, I want to say it would have been like 98 during the Olympic break. He was playing for the Philadelphia Phantoms. Detroit had their farm team in. Myself and Jesse Bolaris went to the game because Jesse was a, a Flyers draft pick. But I went to go watch Sean. And there was a player on his team that's infamous named Frank the Animal Biolas. So I know who the animal was. And I walk into the dressing room the one day. And no word of a lie, I've never been so afraid of a teammate in all my life. Because I walk in and Frank had played on the team the year before. At this point, he was working for like Pennsylvania Telephone or something like that. I walk in and I literally stopped dead in my tracks and I'm like, without using the language that I did, I was just like, oh my gosh, it's the animal. And Frank, the animal is in our dressing room. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like playing Adirondack. I know they got a tough team, but so I kind of walk by him. Hi, Frank, how are you? You know, says hi. Everybody's talking about it in the room because Frank is a renowned tough guy, like pound for pound, one of the toughest guys. He's a legend in Philadelphia. So what had happened is, is the team had basically brought him in for one game. But when it got really screwed up was we walk out for warm-up. And at the one end we've got, and this video is on YouTube. I'll share it with you so you can put it in the liner notes or whatever. We walk out, and on the video screen is a WWF and Frank the Animal clips intertwined, okay, of, you know, the Undertaker music, the dong, dong, and then clips of Frank just, beating on guys and stuff. And at the end, Adirondack, the reason why Frank was brought in for that game, Adirondack had a guy named Blue Benefield, who is a legit tough guy. Like he would go toe to toe with anybody, extremely tough. And at the end of it, there was a picture of Blue on the screen and a Budweiser symbol. Sorry, Puppy, if that's not Molson Pro. It's not, but, no. You know, anyways, Budweiser symbol that says, this one's for you, Blue with his picture on it. So we literally had a bounty on this guy's head that Frank the Animal was brought in to fight you, Blue. And the disappointing part of the story is, is they never fought. I think Frank was minus two. I think we lost. But the greatest story of all, like, that was unbelievable because I remember Jeff Don warm-up skating around. He's like, Smitty, what are we doing here? I said, well, I know you're getting paid well. I'm getting paid well. Let's just roll with it, buddy. <laughs> right, so played the game, but uh, you, you got to watch the video to understand it. But there was things like that that happened that you know were uh, were quite entertaining. Let's put it that way. Can't believe they didn't go. Oh, I wouldn't fight Frank the Animal either. You, it's easy for you to say that, Poker, when you're not staring yeah, down. Yeah, very, Frank. very easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, unfortunately, I don't think Blue was in a, a very he wasn't in a win-win situation, right? Because if he fights Frank, the next time out you got Wingfield, and the next time out you got McIsaac. And, like, we were – that was the toughest team by our none that I ever played on. And, you know, the 96 Whalers were a pretty tough team. Well, that's a great thing, though, for a guy like you who, you know, was never shy about the physicality. You got to be one of the scoring sensations on that Trashers team. Well, I don't know about a scoring sensation, but I, I will say that on another uh, maybe lesser-known podcast, Spit and Chicklets, A.J. Galante did say that I was a very skilled defenseman missing in the uh, in the finals. So I'll take that one. <laughs> <laughs> we, we appreciate the uh, 
the knowledge that you have of podcasts around hockey. Obviously, that's a lesser known podcast than OHL stories here. So Never heard of it. Yeah. Um, going back to your time in Plymouth, you mentioned that tough team. What's it like playing on a team that is that tough and you can, you know, be a little more offensive and have a little more fun? Um, it, it's nice. You know, back then, though, like it was just it's a different game. The game has changed for the better, for sure, where you don't have to worry about it. But it's certainly nice to know that, you know, you've got other guys that are tougher than you and maybe enjoy that role. And you're kind of the secondary attraction where, you know, you'd, you'd have to fight for um, what I would call the right reasons. And that would be an emotional play where, you know, things happen, nothing that's set up or going into it, knowing that I'm going to have to scrap that guy. All that stuff is garbage. And um, I'm happy that it's out of the game. Okay. So, Popper put this one nicely on a T for me here, leads into it because yes, we've made a lot of references to to what doesn't happen in the game anymore and absolutely for the better, but tough teams sometimes get involved in tough things and something that never happens anymore in the league is what happened between the Plymouth Whalers and the Sioux Greyhounds before Mm -hmm. the puck even dropped. It was one of those infamous, like you talked about your first OHL game and oddly enough, it was the Sioux involved in that one with the Steelhawks, but what happened between the Whalers and the Hounds before the game even started. So, yeah, this game, I can't imagine if somebody actually had video of it. It's definitely before they started filming warm-ups. Uh, I can't remember who the players were on on the suicide that started it, but basically what happened is, is somebody flipped the puck over on our side, and then we kind of snapped the puck at them, and then they snapped one back a little bit harder at us. And next thing you know, it's – Sue on one blue line, Whalers on another blue line, and I'm not kidding, full clappers, bang, back and forth at each other. You know, guys were going back to the corner, putting the puck back to the blue line, taking full slap shots. And I'll never forget, and I can't believe I was dumb enough to be watching the linesman and not watching for my own life. Whoever the poor linesman was, he's sitting there, he's like, stop, guys, stop, stop. And there's pucks whizzing by this poor guy. And it didn't stop until Spotter and the other Sioux coach came out. But I can remember, like, Paul Mara had a pretty hard slap shot. And, you know, thankfully nobody got hurt. But if you're blocking Paul Mara's slap shot in the chest, it's going to leave a little bit of a mark. But it's one of those things that, unless you saw it, it's really hard to articulate and understand. But it was it was literally just like a shooting range. It was like we went to the – you know, to the backyard and just started taking clappers at a net, but really it was at our opponents and uh, different times. That's for sure. See, back to what I said before about being squeamish. I would have just left the ice. I don't care. Reputation be damned. I'm out of there. (laughs) Just hide behind somebody or get behind the net. But uh, no, like those those days were completely different. I can remember playing Belleville in the playoffs and in the old barn there, which is still there for an American league. Um, as the visitors, you'd have to go out and you'd go to the right, actually, for warm-up. I think when they left Belleville, you'd go to the left. And it was when the teams would go out for 20 minutes and then 15 minutes. And, um, like, we're shooting pucks in the crowd. It was awful. But uh, one of the Belleville players, well-known player, I won't bring up his name, is blocking our entrance. And then, again, Jesse, who I've talked about, Bullerys, says, all right, out of the way, boys, and literally sprinted down the uh, the hallway, right out the door like a WWF move, and just bowls this guy over. And so sure enough, scrum ensues, because now we come out, and I'll never forget, I, I'm pretty sure it was Bowler, doing a big spin around our zone, and out of nowhere, 
like WWF again jumps into the pile, and you know it could have been a lot worse than it was, but you know fans were at us. Um, you know, again, it's a different time. Like anybody that's been to Windsor Arena, it's it's just a different world now. The league's a lot better, thank God. But um, I don't know if that story does any justice or not. You'd have to have been there, I think. But. I was just going to bring up that Windsor Arena because you mentioned the old barn in Belleville, and we get lots of Windsor Arena stories on this podcast. And being so close in Plymouth and obviously the Detroit Compuware at the time, what was it like going into that Windsor Arena? That was like a home game for me, to be honest with yeah. you, because uh, I did the math one time, and I think through playoffs and everything else, I think I played 33 games there. And it got to the point, like, you know, we had pretty good teams in Plymouth, where I had been there so long and played so many games, the fans would get on me. I'll never forget the one guy. It was my second year. I skate out for warm-up, and they had the short glass, right? It would have been great for the short guys to be able to chirp and stuff, right? And uh, maybe, um, but it still would have been too high for me, guys. Yeah. Let's be honest. Like, just they give you little jabs. It was, you know, I skate out and I, we were a bad team. We barely made the playoffs. I think I was like minus 14 or minus 15. Guy reads out Troy Smith minus 15. Yeah, you're going somewhere, right? And then they just be relentless on you. But I'll never forget the one night um, I'm out on the ice and I'm in a scrum in the corner with DJ Mando and the lights go out. The lights go completely out. It was Frisbee night, right? So we're sitting on the bench, and we literally, if I could show my visor, we get our visors pulled down. And I'll never forget hearing Greg Stefan being like, ah, bleep, right? Because he got pegged. Like, all you'd hear is just this, like, tink, 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 all around the boards because everybody just throwing Frisbees at us. You know, guys getting electrocuted in the shower, Um you know, people stand behind the movable uh, stanchions that you'd walk to to get to the dressing room, chirping you and pushing it. And it was, you know what, like, it was a it was a zone. Like, it was a battle zone going in there every single night. But then you'd walk in, because we would go over and watch games, and they'd be your best friends. Like, I love Windsor, not just for the great pizza, but also, you know, their, their passion for that game and, you know, that, that's one of the things I do miss about the OHL is the, the rinks that have that kind of character. I think that Frisbee story is the best story I've heard on this podcast. It could be. It's up that there. You awesome. know, it's, it's making me think, and, and it ties into what you just said, Smitty, about missing the OHL. But I'm wondering, as I listen to these stories, and you've got a few beauties, if it makes you think, whew, good thing I didn't become a teacher when I was thinking about it. Or you sit back and say, what the hell was I thinking? I should have become a teacher because it's pretty nutty out here. Yeah, you know, I'd grown up in Hamilton. I think I'm pretty comfortable in the nutty situations. Right? <laughs> so, um, no, I, I wouldn't change it for the world. Like, there's tons of other stories that, you know, there's stories that you don't even remember, right? That, you know, somebody, you know, jars your memory and, you know, how do you forget that, right? And then, and then there's stories that you, you can't tell in this environment, right? That, uh, you know, uh, go a long way. But at the end of the day, you know what? Hey, it's... Um, it didn't really end the way I wanted it to at this point, right? Not saying that I would never be back, but the people that you meet in this game are, are top shelf and unbelievable. And I wouldn't trade the relationships that I've built uh, for really for anything, right? Nothing at all. First up, you can tell any story on this podcast, Smitty. <laughs> any story you want. Well, no, 
Yeah, any story you want. Uh, I'm like the person in the dock that you would know. I, I value loyalty. <laughs> I like it. Uh, second, of course, you're used to those types of scenarios. Three brothers, right? You grew up like I, I can yeah. imagine your house was basically the Windsor Arena growing up. Uh, pretty close. Yeah, <laughs> it was a house of four boys. God bless my mother for being able to put up with us. And, you know, and, and four boys like and we didn't live in a huge house. We lived in a semi-detached house that's probably 1200 square feet. And then on top of that, we bring in hockey players. So, um, yeah, my my house is a little bit different where, you know, my older brother, my youngest brother kind of went more in the artistic way, whereas Mikey, my brother who played with me at St. FX and fortunate to win a national championship with him um you know we kind of went the athletic way so it was a bit of a of a unique household and uh yeah it was uh my poor mother that's all i can say. like the I things that, so here here's a story for you so this is a sean mccosh story though all right for billeting so and i i forgot about this one until you jogged my memory here right um so my mom's rushing around she's got four boys right so dinner's on the table it's spaghetti and Mark, my youngest brother, Mark, how old was Mark? But Mark would have been no more than six, like five or six. So my mom's rushing upstairs, getting all ready. And Sean, Mark, Mark, put it in your hair. Put it in your hair. So Mark, who would listen to anything that Sean said, whoop, right? Rub it in. So Mark, rubbing it in like it's shampoo. The look on my mother's face when she comes down and my brother's just smiling at her with like spaghetti strands all over was brilliant, brilliant. And I'm sure she wanted to strangle Sean at the time, but those are the sorts of things that happen away from the rink that, you know, really make billeting so much fun. Spaghetti is always a go-to. I think if you have that many kids, it's easy. It's quick. Kids like it, but it's always a dangerous food because that can get pretty out of hand. Oh, yeah. well, hey, well, we had a few fights, I'm sure, with it going across the table and things like that. Farzi, if I can follow that up real quick, Troy, you mentioned that national championship. You won it with your brother, Mike, but I heard that uh, Mike might have had a broken angle ankle in a basketball game that you weren't pulling your weight in. Do you remember that? No, that's a, I've never heard that story before in my life. No? I, no, I, I was bad I was, scoop. I was told that you were in a uh, basketball game against. Uh, well, I don't know who you were playing, but one of them was a woman on the Saint FX basketball team, and she crossed over your brother. Time. Yeah, she she crossed over your brother and broke his ankle. I don't think he ever broke it, right? But he okay, he probably, maybe a high, maybe a high sprain, maybe a high sprain. But you know, probably probably the best story about that team was uh, we talk about NCAA, so. In the CIS, most a lot of teams will go to the U.S. to play exhibition games, right? Get a few games on the schedule. The NCAA teams like it because they call it a scrimmage. So the year we won, um, Danny Flynn was our coach, and Danny's an unbelievable coach. But he had the best lines going. Like, he just throw one-liners that would throw you for a loop. So we go down, and we played – I can't remember who we played. The second game was against Dartmouth. I know that. And the night before, university kids, you know, got in a little bit of trouble. There might have been some damage in the hotel room to start. We win the game. We're driving back. Immigration guy gets on and anything to declare. Well, your university students where the cost of alcohol in the U.S. versus the cost of alcohol in Canada, significantly different, way cheaper in the U.S. So everybody gets on one bottle, one duty free, one duty free. 
immigration guy goes under, and I will throw this guy under the bus. Graham Power brought a suitcase. I don't know why you bring a suitcase on the road or who does that. Guy pulls it out, sees a big 60-ounce bottle in his bag. He pulls the whole bus over, the whole bus. And I have pictures of this. We all had to put our bags through scanners to where they're pulling bottles out. Guys are now on probation at the border. We've got pictures with the border guards, right? We're in big, big trouble. Mikey and I got off because we were family, so we weren't over the limit. Beautiful, right? But so that happens. So we've got damage in the hotel room. We got pulled over at the border. Danny's not a happy camper. So the next day we go to practice. We're going to practice on the auxiliary rink because Great Big C is playing that night at our school on the stadium rink. And they're they're basically, they run side by side. So there's glass. Flinner blows the whistle, comes over. He always scrapes off his stick and then taps it twice. And he goes, you hear that over there? And we can hear the Great Big C doing their sound check. We're all like, yeah, we know we're in for it. He goes, Great Big C over there. Great Big Skate over here. Line up. And just like back and forth for an hour. But that team ended up winning the national championship. So a long way for the one line, but it was a, it was a good one. I thought, you know, it brings into the conversation, something I know you're also very passionate about. And I wanted to ask along with hockey uh, is music. I I don't know how Alan Doyle and great big C rank in the overall, uh, you know, library of, of Troy Smith. I know you're proud, uh, Hamilton boys, so the Arkells are up there, but you've got a, a huge love uh, for music. Where'd you get it from? Uh, that's really all from my dad. My dad was a disc jockey. I think, as you know, Mike, he, uh, he spent time on Chime FM 96.7, uh, but really grew up uh, with him on CKOC 1150, which is now no longer AM station, but that was back when AM was huge. And uh, so my dad was a disc jockey. He still plays uh, music once this COVID stuff opens up to this day, he still plays in a band. So we had a ton of records down below. And uh, I was also fortunate enough that my godfather is a gentleman named Nevin Grant, who unfortunately passed away about a year ago. And Nevin is in the Canadian Broadcasting Hall of Fame. And he's really well known for the uh, top 40 that CKOC used to do where uh, he, he was really a hit maker. Like he would go around, he would listen to it. And the stories that my dad has about him, you know, John Novak, Ray Michaels, uh, I know I'm missing some other guys, uh, Jason Roberts. Um, there's, there's a ton of guys about, you know, the people they interviewed and the things that happened and, you know, different songs that they gave a try. Like CKOC was a big, big station back then to the point where, you know, it was a traveling road show. They'd have uh, the CKOC hockey pucks, the the busy bees uh, or the baseball team. And, and really that's where it grew was just being around, uh, you know, my dad, really. I had no idea Nevin was your godfather up and like, and we've known each other for a lot of years and I'm a radio geek. You're not, uh, you're, you're probably underselling uh, Nevin Grant's influence on the radio industry for sure. Oh, hundred percent. Like oh. you, you mentioned the word Nevin Grant to anybody that's in radio. He's, he's, there's a reason why he was going in the hall of fame. Like, you know, he, uh, and, and what a gentleman of a man, him and his wife, Heather, uh, they used to have me for the weekend. Every year we'd go to Flamborough Downs and, uh, and watch the ponies. But, uh, Nevin's a, a fantastic man. The world definitely lost a, a, a rock icon. Really. You talk to anybody uh, in Canadian radio and they know who uncle Nevis. We've kind of bounced around your career 
all yeah. over the place throughout this podcast. I'm just going to circle back to your time when uh, Pete and yourself and Spotter all came to Kitchener. Um, what was it like being in that coach's room all the time with a guy like Pete and Spotter? Um, a lot of fun, right? Like, I, I think everybody knows about Spotter's antics, and I know Farwell probably wants – Michael probably wants to get to uh, the first – stunt spotter pulled on me which I'll gladly tell but uh you know a, a great amount of fun like the one thing about those guys is like they do an unbelievable job of separating when it's time to have fun and when it's time to be get down to business and I think you guys both know that but um it, it was a ton of fun there was never a dull day I was single for a lot of that time so they were you know definitely chirping me about that and trying to get involved in different things but um you know, couldn't have more, much more fun than that. So a perch there, Popper? Hmm? You're a little, a little parched. parched. Yeah. You got somebody delivering water to you. Got right? yeah. Listen, you got to stay hydrated. When you get to the big time, people deliver you water. You know, you. see? I hear so you alluded to it. And it's it's funny because when we had Spotter on this podcast uh, back during the, the lost season last year, but uh, he did cop to the, uh, the Bob Bugner photocopier story that that traveled or yeah they they sent to yeah. i'm trying to from yeah, they florida sent it to, to san jose right well i can't remember which way yeah. but anyway uh <laughs> but but spotter was famous for the antics for sure did he get you did you leave your email unlocked what was the uh what was uh, the stunt he pulled on you i did not leave my email unlocked dan okay. liebold did so we we've <laughs> talked about the trashers a little bit and uh i was finishing up my career and the injury i had was i i had a legitimate concussion my in the in the finals it actually happened earlier and then I played and anyways I had a concussion when I ended with with Danbury so I know Spotter's a prankster right and he says to me you know what Smitty uh, you know you've had the head injury so uh, to get the insurance you might have to do a physical and I'm like no like there's no way I'm like you know basically tell him to shuffle on Spotter you know I don't believe you next thing you know I get about a four or five paragraph email from Dan Lebel and it's explaining all the reasons why I need to have this, these tests done. And it's, you know, for my life insurance and it's so important. We can't get you uh, on board with the benefits until you do this. And it's going to involve a beep test and some push-ups and things of that nature. So I'm thinking like Dan Liebold, like Dan Liebold is the most honest salt of the earth man you've ever, you'd ever want to meet. Like if it came from Danny, it must be true. And so I bet, I bet, and Spotter, Spotter gets Scott Atkins, who was the, the uh, strength and conditioning coach at the time, to come out, and he ropes off the beep test. And I think I have to do this for the benefits. So beep, Troy starts running, right? Beep, I'm running back. But as I'm doing this, I start to see, like, Adam Bramhill walk out. Uh, Jeff Young walks out of the office. Right. And all these people, I'm like, why are all these people all of a sudden walking out to the ice that's not there right now? This is June, you know, and I'm kind of starting to get wise to it. And then finally, Pete opens the door and is like, all right, Smitty, that's enough. You're a coach now. You got to figure this out. Right. And basically, he had set me up. And I'm not the only person he's got on this trick, but he set me up to do a fake fitness test on probably my third day on the job. But he is a legend, that guy. Like, he's just, he's one of a kind. But uh, 
Yeah, he he had a lot of fun that day with it. That's for sure. Doing the deep test as a coach. (laughs) Popper, sorry. I'm going to jump in with my follow-up here because it's the name I promised earlier I was going to refer back to a previous podcast guest, and I'm anal. It just fits, so... Hang in there with me, but uh, Steve spot when he, when he was on here, Troy, he, he brought your name up and said that you're a guy that he would like to see back in the game at some point. I couldn't be more proud of him. He's a guy that I talk to weekly and uh, will always be a part of my life and is a great hockey man. And I do believe he'll get back in at some point, maybe in a different position, whether it be scouting uh, or development, but at the same time, uh, couldn't be more happy to have him as a, as what I consider a best friend. You hinted earlier that kind of the never say never. And I know that you're a, you're an automotive guy now and, and talk about Acuron Brandt all you want because a great group and you've been supportive of my fundraising endeavors. But is there any chance we're going to see Troy Smith back in the game in any capacity? Uh, I would say never say never. Like right now I'm concentrating on, on my, you know, I'm a general manager now with limited uh, car experience. So I'm concentrating on that, but I, w- I would love to get back involved in the game, whether it's scouting or, or coaching, whatever it may be. It's just been, you know, it's been a tough time with uh, with obviously the pandemic to see what's out there, but you're going to start to see me a little bit more than you probably want to, Mike. You know, uh, you know, I, I do miss the meals in the in the press room there, uh, so uh, I'll I'll end up back in it at some point in some capacity. It's just got to be the right time and the right opportunity. Did you ever get Spotter back? Spotter's impossible to get back. The problem is, is like you you got to be like. You want to get Spotter back, he's going to get you back a hundred times worse. Like when you talk about the fax machine that he sent to Bob Bugner, like he used to, he'd hide things into people's bags. So I know um, with one of the Leafs, well, it was Steve Stales. So all of a sudden I'm at Spotter's house and he hands me this moldy, gross, I think it was guacamole or something like that. And he literally had kept it for like four months after the season, gave it to me and says, give this to Steve. So I walk in and I hand it to Steve and he knew exactly what it was. Like Spotter had stuck something in his bag. We send that back to Stephen Harper with, uh, who went to San Jose's camp that year. And then I want to say Spotter purulated it back to the Bulldog. Like he can't win with Spotter. Like he's just, he's, he's two steps ahead. I do have a way to know if he's serious or not now, but, you know, I, I can't divulge those secrets because it would ruin all his uh, his good games. But for as much as he's he's a prankster, he's got a heart of gold and give you the shirt off his back. His canceling the Memorial Cup prank was pretty good too. That might be the all time best. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the fact that he didn't tell his bosses about well, he told Pete because obviously Pete was in on it. But the fact that that Steve Binkowski didn't know, like. I don't know. Like he's got more guts than I do too. I'd be scared to death to do that. But that, that was brilliant. Dave Yitzi did a great job on that. Uh, I'm trying to think. Like there's just things that Spotter does. That, I remember we were in Erie one night. And this is before video replay. So we score a goal that wasn't even close to being it. Like not even close. And you guys know the back hallway. It's basically the whole length of the ice before the renovation in Erie. And the fans are all over this poor goal judge who turned the light on. Wasn't even close to me. And that wins us the game. So this guy's just been abused by the Erie faithful for a good solid 10, 15 minutes. So he's walking down the hall. He's got his head down. Spider looks at him. He goes, hey, great game tonight. Very underrated. (laughs) 
cartoon. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, who thinks of that? But that's fodder. I love the guy. I love him. He's the best. We, so. uh, we touched on it earlier, but I, I just want to get some of your thoughts because, you know, you had the, the Danny Flynn line away from the actual championship. But, but I, and we know how proud you are. Your sand effects, you know, being an alum, you've got the ring that we've seen. Are you wearing not it tonight? Ju- not just alum, Hall Here. of Famer. That's true. Sorry, NFX that's, Hall of Famer. That's true. <laughs> of course he's wearing the ring. Of course he's wearing the ring for the podcast. Uh, what does that championship mean to you? Um, unbelievable relationships. You know, they, I keep going back to it, but really that's what the game's about. You can win and lose. Um, you know, that's going to go up and down. You're going to be on good teams. You're going to be on bad teams. But when I think back to that team, you know, there's guys that, you know, because – what you guys probably don't know is we had made it two out of the three years previous and lost. So there's so many guys along that journey that are still lifelong friends. And really to win it with my brother, uh, it was on my dad's birthday with my two best friends in the rank, a guy named Rob Leggett and his brother, Brett, uh, just something that you'll never forget. And even better is that uh, former Oshawa general Ryan Lindsay, who was kind of my, you know, quote unquote hero growing up, he was a couple of years older, we beat him. So I'll always have that on him. And, uh, you know, it was a great time. And, you know, right out of a, a storybook when it comes to a small town, it's almost like Hoosiers, right? Where, you know, this little small, small town wins the championship. The people in town loved it. I'll never forget walking into my class about four days later, three, four days later with uh, Dr. Maltby, who's, a, who's one of the business professors there. Still hungover. Oh, well, yeah, probably. <laughs> might, might, might be one step further than that, Popper. But uh, I walk in, and, and again, this is three, four days later for class, right? Because I got to graduate and everything else. Looks at me and goes, what are you doing here? And I go, well, I've been in your class all semester, you know? He goes, no, no, I thought you'd still be out, you know, having a time with the boys. <laughs> See? <laughs> you know, that's the same effect. If you're a good person, you'll last. If you're not. It's not all about the party, but uh, it's a great place, and it's all about the people. If we can go towards the other coast, um, what was the experience like when you went over to Humboldt? Uh, so heavy, right? That, yeah. That's a good way to put it, but it's really hard to put into words. Like, th- There's two parts to it. There's obviously the sadness of it and just you know how heavy that was, but the appreciation for the resilience I have for all those people in Humboldt, um, people that lost loved ones. Um, it's, it really provided perspective, right? Because we get on the bus all the time, you know, and obviously, you know, that was a tragedy that happened, but to watch the people that, um, you know, went through such a, a traumatic event and not really have the space to, to grieve and deal with it, but to watch how they handled it with such dignity. And, you know, everybody's got their own ways of dealing with it and stuff like that. But um, the forgiveness in some of the people, um, the appreciation of other people that I would go out there, which I found bizarre, but um, it was it's it's impossible to put into words other than it was extremely heavy um it was a great example of resilience as i've said and it's by far the most rewarding experience i've had in hockey 
that experience, uh, the, the resiliency and, and the tragedy aside, I remember getting a picture from you from one of the barns that you were in. And I, I use barn deliberately here. Oh, yeah. uh, you, you had some you had some rinks while you were in the SJHL. Oh, yeah. Well, that was in La Roche, Saskatchewan. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. <laughs> and the press box was literally just like a piece of plywood above our bench, no railings know anything and you'd have to look up the range on a map to really understand it but um it, it's old school like you know you went from everywhere from wilcox where notre dame is to to Larange, you know to down to estevan who had a beautiful new rink um but it's all those small towns and it, like the only other thing i remember is like i don't think you can explain how cold it is there like, I want to say our first game, I was going to get on the bus and somebody told me it was minus 49 with the wind chill. Like, we never turned the bus off. It was just, but no, all, all those towns, and they're all the same, where they've all got local people that are supporting it, selling the 50-50. It's old school, man, and so was that league. Like, it was a good, honest league. The hockey's a lot better than I think people realize. The coaching is a heck of a lot better than people realize. And... um it's a bit of a hidden gem that way. I don't think the SJ gets the uh, respect it deserves. Um, you mentioned how it was the most rewarding uh, part of your hockey career. You also got to wear the Canadian National Leaf as a video coach and assistant coach as a head coach. Do you look back on that? Like, I guess I don't want to ask you just what it means because I'm sure it means a lot. But what was it like being a coach of Team Canada? Uh, amazing. You know what? I've been fortunate. I think I've done it. Uh, four or five times now. I, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, I just did the Youth Olympic Games, you know, about a year and a half, two years ago, whatever it was, uh, over in Switzerland. And the thing that you can't put into words is is the responsibility of that leap, right? Because when you walk in, whether you've brought your best team or you haven't brought your best team, everybody expects you to be the best team. And people put Canada on a different pedestal uh, at those tournaments where really, you know, that Maple Leaf is a bit of a target, right? Um, but they also want to watch how Canadians present themselves. And and really that's where, in my opinion, Hockey Canada separates themselves from maybe some other nations where the way they present, the way they go about things, the preparation, uh, it's second to none. And, you know, what I learned so much about not just the game, but about people and how to deal with teams, bring teams together, things like that, that, um, you know, it's, uh, I've been extremely fortunate and, uh, you know, a lot of good times in there too. Like, you know, we talk about Steve spot and one guy that people don't think is a prankster is a guy named Mike Johnson. And um, so the story goes, I, I went to the U 18s in Fargo, North Dakota. All right. What a, what a world-class place. So um, on our team is guys like Brett Conley, Ryan O'Reilly, uh, I think Good Branson. That's the place where we saw Gabriel Landeskog for the first time is at this tournament. So about a week before, so I'm the video coach, right? And um, all, I'm never supposed to go on the ice. And then the Quebec League coach that we had got fired from his job. He pulls out hastily last minute. So now I got to go on the ice as well, which is great. What an opportunity. And I'm working with Mike Johnson, who's a legendary uh, Hockey Canada coach. So uh, Spotter says he didn't, but I still think he does. He did have a part of this. He sets up this drill, and, and I'm like 29. I'm still in decent shape. 
And he goes, okay, I need you to do this drill where basically you're just going to be the trailer in this two-on-one drill. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at him like, okay, like it's going to be a bit of a skate, but it's Mike Johnson, he says. So, okay. So I get out there. Well, it, it was a bag skate is what it was. <laughs> where like literally as the trailer, I was sprinting up to make it a two-on-one. And I'd go back and forth. And I must have went for seven minutes. And I'm telling them, I'm going, there's no freaking way that this guy's going to win. I'm just going to keep going. He's going to have to blow the whistle. And no, he just kept the drill going. <laughs> so finally, I thought my kidneys were going to burst. And I pulled over to Ron Tugna and I was like, Tiger, you got to go. And as soon as I pulled off, over to the board. Right? <laughs> just, you know, I, I shouldn't really be admitting these things, but they were... Uh, they're great stories, and uh, you know Mike is a, is a good, good man as well. The stories is what this podcast is all about. I think that's why we named it what we did. It was Stroke of Genius by Popper on that one. Um, I think it was you, but... You've, you've had some beauties. I, I got I, This is where Chris always jumps and says, hang on, I just got one more, but I got, I got to give you credit for this much, Smitty. We've got about an hour, and you've only called me Michael once. That's that's a record for you. Yeah. Well, when are we going to talk about the mayorship? <laughs> Right now. <laughs> Goldie Wilson. <laughs> so there's the story. I always tease Mike about Michael about becoming mayor of Kitchener or Waterloo, whichever one he wants, maybe regional counselor. Right. And uh, so I used to always get on the bus and call him Goldie Wilson from back to the future. But yeah. and every once in a while, a Goldie Wilson elect Goldie Wilson or Goldie Wilson for mayor. I can't remember what the poster says, but every once in a while that picture will end up in my inbox. So oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I always know where it's coming from. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think I was, gonna, I was just going to ask when you were the head coach of Kitchener, you obviously had to come out and do post-game interviews with two bald idiots. <laughs> Did you, uh, w- which one gave the worst interviews? Um, you can say me, it's fine. No, I don't, I don't think. <laughs> I didn't really ever give it to you, did I? We weren't good enough for me to kind of give you guys you know, any sort of business back for, you know, I couldn't say to you like, Hey, that was a stupid question when, you know, the first year we weren't very good. No, I think the only time was when I questioned you why your uh, power play was struggling, but that night it had went like three for four or something. And you're like, well, I think it was pretty good tonight. <laughs> I was like, Oh yeah, I guess so. Do you want to talk that about happens. the 0 for 13 streak before that or. <laughs> that happens to everybody. Exactly. Um, you're only in trouble with me if I give you the one word answer and I won't say who got enough of those, but. Might be, uh, anyways, I won't say it. He's, <laughs> he's a nice enough guy. But no, I, was, I think I had a pretty good relationship with the media. For the most part, everybody was always fair. And, you know, I thought Brownie did a great job. Um, yeah, no, you guys were good. You guys were real good. What did it, it mean? Both ways. Sorry, Farzi. What did it mean going back when you, you left Kitchener, then you come back with Hamilton when? the OHL goes to Hamilton as the Bulldogs. What did it mean to be a part of that organization to be a Hamilton kid? Uh, you know, I was a nine-year-old kid causing havoc in the stands when that arena was built and, and watching the Steelhawks. So it, it was really, really special. I think, you know, the, the one thing about Hamilton and, and you know, and I can say this because Kitchener is obviously community owned is I don't think the city of Hamilton has any clue not a sniff how lucky they are to have Michael Anlauer as the owner. That man, him, his wife, Lucy, their whole family, unbelievably generous. He's not making any money at that thing. He just wants a great experience. And he said things to me in private that like would blow your mind about where he is with the team. 
And he wants to win, but it's all about an unbelievable experience for the kids. And it's never about dollars and cents. And I, I really hope that city council can get the heck out of the way and let them do what they need to do to make that rink what it is. Because I think if they do that and they can move past the NHL dream, which is quite frankly, never going to happen. And I might get, you know, scorned by Hamilton people for that. It's never happening. Never move on. Let's be a great city that supports an unbelievable junior hockey team because that city's set up to be it with great ownership, great schools, and a great community that doesn't realize what they have in the owner in the owner there. You're reminding me of, you know, back before COVID when we were, you know, playing regularly. And Chris and I talked about this thing a couple of different times on the podcast. It's true. It seems that council can't get out of its own way in this particular instance to allow for you know, what would be an ideal junior hockey environment? I don't know a lot of people, like, other than, you know, the, the Rangers, but, you know, even the Rangers at times have had trouble with city council with the hat in hand comment and things like that. But I don't know a lot of owners that are going to sit there and say, I've got, I can't remember the number, but it's, you know, tens of millions of dollars of my own money that I'm willing to invest in your city and then get, not backlash, but questioned about it. It's like, take the man's money. He's here to help. He wants to see the place do well. His intentions are pure. And, you know, and I've been really fortunate to know the Ann Lowers. They actually introduced me to my significant other, uh, my better half, much better half poker. And, um, you know, they're like, again, I just can't say enough about how lucky Hamilton is to have that ownership group there. I've said it numerous times. I was an intern with the Hamilton Bulldogs when they won the Calder Cup. And school year ended before the finals and everything. And I still got shipped a gold watch, a Hamilton Bulldogs gold watch that had the, my name on the back and like Calder Cup champions. Like I was an intern. I had nothing but respect for Ann Lauer. Like it, the guy was crazy. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's a self-made man. His story is his to tell, but it's an unbelievable story. And uh, I became very close to that family. And uh, he's just, he's just a thoughtful guy. Like, um, you know, I remember one time I had to drop him off somewhere and I was taking this car, which was a nice car. And I was like, oh, you know, do you want me to take it back to the house, whatever? He's like, no, I'm not back till like Tuesday, you know, drive it like you stole it. I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, beautiful car driving around like the 10 cent millionaire. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a beautiful man, great family. And you know what? His wife probably doesn't get enough credit for just how uh, good of a person Lucy is as well. Real nice vehicle. He must have got it at Acuron Brandt. Yes, like at Acuron Brandt. Um, that's the place to go, Popper. I haven't seen you in there yet, though. Oh, buddy, if I could afford a car, I'd be in there. Don't worry. We, we got a budget for everybody. Okay, I like it. We're good. I like it. He's a general manager already. You can tell. <laughs> you can tell. Smitty, this has been uh, a ton of fun. I think we're going to have to get Michael and Lauer on at some point. That's what uh, Troy was hinting at there. But truly, for your stories, man. Uh, it's great to catch up first and foremost, but uh, thanks for making time to, to share these stories with us on the pod. It's been a blast. Glad you guys haven't forgotten about me and uh, look forward to seeing you in the rink. And hopefully uh, I had a great time and hopefully you guys did as well. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. 
legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.